Thank you for greeting each other so warmly. Come on back if you would. And if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Genesis and chapter 5. Book of Genesis and chapter 5. We'll also show the verses on the screen to my right. We are in this book of beginnings, and we, we gave three reasons at the outset for why we want to do so. We want to understand our God better, understand ourselves better, and understand our hope better. And I, I hope something of all three of those happens for us today in this passage, Genesis chapter 5. And may God use His Word in our hearts and minds together. I'm told there is a painting hanging in the Louvre in Paris called The Raft of the Medusa. You can look it up online. It's a picture of of hopelessness and, and despair based on a true story. The Medusa was a French ship filled with dignitaries that, that ran aground off the coast of Senegal in the early 19th century. The captain of the Medusa decided to abandon ship, but there were only six lifeboats. So he put the dignitaries into the lifeboats and had a raft constructed for the entirety of the crew, 150 people. Well, those in the lifeboats began to tow the raft, but it soon became apparent that wasn't going to work. The raft was too flimsy, and so they scandalously, really, cut the ropes to the raft and let the raft and its inhabitants to their fate four miles off the coast of Senegal. On the raft, the men began to fight amongst themselves. On the first night, 20 were killed or committed suicide. On the fourth day on the raft, some resorted to cannibalism. On the eighth day, the fittest began throwing the weakest overboard. Thirteen days later, another ship happened upon this raft, and only 15 people were left alive. So this painting, this famous painting, is a picture of, of hopelessness and, and despair. And I think it's a pretty good way of thinking about, a pretty good fitting picture for our own world and sometimes our own lives. Doesn't, doesn't our world feel kind of like one big Medusan raft? We think about the constant strife, the warfare, the abject poverty in many places, the, the famine, the disease, and inevitable death. And this world feels like a raft that is going down. Or maybe that's how your own life feels right now. The problems seem insurmountable with your health, with the finances with the job, with the marriage, with the kids, with your own sin and your own temptations. You feel like you're on some rickety raft that's taken on water. Or, or maybe you don't feel that way at all. 
Maybe you feel entirely insulated from those kinds of problems. Maybe the job is going well, the health is great, there's money in the bank, you feel entirely secure. And I trust you're aware that feeling of utter security in yourself is a mirage. We are mortal and don't know if today will be our last. If you really think about it, if you really think about it, we're all on this kind of raft and left to ourselves. It's a hopeless and helpless picture. And Genesis, the book of Genesis, gives us a grid for understanding that. It gives us a, a worldview. Genesis explains why we're on this raft and how we got there in the first place. And Genesis shows us hope, sure hope, for you and me right now. So I want to see both with you. I want to, I want to understand the raft. I want to understand the hopelessness and helplessness we I think rightly should feel in light of this passage we'll look at that we might appreciate and lay hold of the sure hope God offers to you and me right now. So let's see three key elements from this passage. It's a big passage. I'm going to just draw out three key elements. There's a lot we could look at. We're going to draw three key elements to help us understand our world and ourselves and our hope. So see first key element, let's call it this, inescapable death. Inescapable death. Chapter 5, verse 1, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now pause there. This is Moses' signal that he's starting a new section. That's his, that's his chapter break, you might say. And there are ten of these in Genesis, each reading the generations of so-and-so. So new heading from Moses, the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image, he named him Seth. We saw him in chapter 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were, what, were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had, fathered, had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenosh. Kenan, rather, 815 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he'd fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. 
When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. One more time. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That is a depressing passage to read. And that's why I read it in its entirety, to depress you. (laughs) Life wasn't always that way. Verse 2 reads, verse 2 reads, notice verse 2, male and female, he, God, created them, and he blessed them. Human life started under the blessing of God we have seen in Genesis. God made the first humans sinless, able to live in God's presence to bless forever. He gave them only one command to do so, one command and one command only, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day, in the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so as we saw in chapter 3, Adam and Eve did the one thing they were not supposed to do. And they died in that very day in a very real way. They were cast out of the immediate presence of God to bless But in God's mercy, you may have noticed, in God's mercy, they didn't die physically that day. No, on that fateful day, you might recall in chapter 3, God also made a promise. Someone from the line of the woman, someone coming from the offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent, the deceiver, the devil who had tricked them. And that's a key promise in your Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The the rest of the Bible unfolds that verse. Through the offspring of the woman, a deliverer would come. So, catch this. Adam and Eve experienced that day a kind of spiritual death. But physical death in God's mercy was postponed for the sake of the promise. But it could only be postponed for so long. And that's why you have this section in chapter 5. 
with this monotonous drumbeat of death, this inexorable death march. You probably saw the repeated formula again and again. So-and-so lived X number of years, fathered so-and-so, lived X number of more years, and he died. We wonder about the very long lifespans. We're not told anything about that because I don't think that's the main point. The main point is what's repeated, and he died, and he died, and then he died, and then he died, and on and on we go. It is inescapable death presented in Genesis chapter 5. We think, don't we, we think that death is just a natural part of life. Death is a natural part of the life cycle. You are born, you live, and you die. What could be more natural than that? But a a biblical worldview says death is not natural. It's an intruder into the human experience. But it's an intruder we invited in. And so all die. Now, I realize you might be here thinking, I didn't invite any intruder in like this. I didn't eat any forbidden fruit, thank you very much. So why should I die too? So I wanted to think about that with you briefly. The reality is you were represented on that fateful day when the first humans plunged us all into sin. Adam Adam is called your your federal head. your captain, you might say. He represented you. You are born in Adam, so you're part of a fallen race, and you cannot remove yourself from that. It's kind of like playing a team sport. Think about basketball or football. For Joshua's sake, I'll mention baseball, (laughs) soccer. In a team sport, you can have a great game personally. You could score multiple touchdowns. You could make every three-point shot you take. You could have a hat trick in soccer. You could hit multiple home runs or hit for the cycle in baseball. You could have a great, the best game of your life. But if your team loses, what happens for you? You take the L too, right? You too lose. You're part of the team. You're joined together that way. The human race is is like that in God's eyes. We have this corporate identity, and our team captain, our team captain has already forfeited the game. He has already plunged the entire team into sin and guilt, and so we inherit, we inherit guilt from that first Sin. It's, it's what's called original sin, or part of what's called original sin. The effect of that first sin, we inherit guilt from Adam, and the effect is we die. No matter how rich or poor you are, whether, whether well-educated or not at all, there is no escaping this inevitable reality. In fact, Jesus told a parable about that, at least I think captures captures this a little bit, reflects something of this, a story of a poor man 
named Lazarus and a rich man. And every day, this poor man Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gates, the, the gates of his Hollywood estate, where Lazarus would, would beg for scraps of food. Well, then one day, they both die. The great equalizer, massively different experiences in this life, they both die. But then, the rich man finds, finds himself in a place where his riches do him no good. A place where his wealth counts for nothing because he faced a, a bigger problem than just physical death. He hadn't believed God's word. He hadn't trusted in God's promises in this book. And so he found himself, after physical death, under God's curse forever. You see, there are two kinds of death in the Bible. The first death is a physical death, separation of body and soul temporarily. I think it's helpful to remember there's a second death as well the Bible speaks of, and that's being under God's curse against sin in a real place called hell. My point is, we, we will exist after death. The question is where? So take this in. We live in a culture that denies death or defies death, a culture that conditions us to be like an ostrich with our heads in the sand when it comes to death. But Genesis 5 is saying, here's the reality. It puts us face to face with reality. In fact, I was going to skip this passage in planning this series. The elders appealed and said, can we make sure we cover chapter 5? That that's not a direct quote, but that was their suggestion. Because here's a reality we need to be confronted with because it's very, friends, very spiritually healthy to remember this reality. Death is inevitable. And left to ourselves, that's only the beginning of our problems. That's the first key element of this Medusan raft we find ourselves on. Inescapable death. Let's go on. Second element then. Let's call it radical depravity. Radical depravity. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Years. It seems that God begins to now limit the lifespan of mankind. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, we do not know who these sons of God are in verses 2 and 4. There are a few different options they might be spiritual beings, fallen angels who leave their proper place. Other options are possible. 
regardless, what is clear is that a new level of evil, a new level of depravity has been reached as we read on. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Well, doesn't that grip you? God is grieved he's made mankind. He determines in verse 7 to blot out humanity. Judgment is coming, and notice why. Verse 5 tells us the wickedness of man is great in the earth. In fact, we're told every intention of the thoughts of his heart, only evil, continually. Here's part of that worldview, part of that interpretive grid that we need. Left to ourselves, I think verse 5 still applies. Every intention, the thoughts of the heart, they just run quickly to one place, very naturally to one place. They, they run to evil, it seems, continually. You see, original sin means we inherit two things from Adam, guilt and inward corruption. We now come into this world dead, spiritually speaking. We, we are born bent toward evil, a, a slave to sin. Now we are totally, or I prefer radically, depraved. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. In God's common grace, He restrains the depravity of mankind in many ways. Fallen people do good things. We address injustices. We, we create beautiful art, amazing music. We show love and, and kindness to each other. We're definitely not as bad as we could be by God's common grace. But what this means is this idea of radical depravity. It means that every part of us is tainted by sin. It means that at the root of our being, we have been corrupted. So every part affected, the mind, the will, the affections, the emotions, it's been said that we are a combination of glory and garbage. Glory as image bearers of the living God. Garbage because of this inward corruption. And you can respond to that statement in one of two ways. You're responding to that statement right now in one of two ways. Either I just offended you, or what I said is protecting you. So you, you, you could be thinking right now, garbage, 
Now, I, I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I'm far better than you, I'm sure. No, yeah, no one is perfect, but to say there's garbage within me is an affront to my character. I take it as a personal attack, an attack on my dignity. Thank you very much. That's one way to take that. Or you can respond like this. True story, 1960, Israeli undercover agents captured one of the masterminds of the Holocaust, Adolf Eichmann. They brought Eichmann back to Israel to stand trial, and they called concentration camp survivors as witnesses, one including Yehel Dinur. Mr. Dinur entered the courtroom and stared at the man who had killed his friends and had killed millions of other people. As the eyes of these two men met, the courtroom felt silent. And then Mr. Denour began to shout and, and sob and collapsed on the floor. And people wondered why. Was he, was he overcome by hatred or by the horrifying memories? He later explained in an interview, he was screaming and sobbing. And he collapsed on the floor because he realized that Eichmann was an ordinary man just like anyone else. He said, quote, I was afraid about myself. I was afraid, he said, about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this. Eichmann, he said, is in all of us. That's the other way to respond. To say, truth be told, something of Eichmann, something of Genesis 6, is in all of us. And that's really important to see. That's really important to see. How, how you understand yourself. Let's just make application here. I know we're kind of drawing a lot of theology. But how you view yourself, it's kind of like, it's kind of like one of those choose-your-adventure stories. Ever seen those? If you choose this, go to such and such a pace. You choose this, go to such and such a pace. In other words, what you choose determines where you end up. How you view yourself is a lot like a choose-your-adventure story. Let me give you an example, famous example from the 4th century. There's a British monk named Pelagius. He was really troubled by the moral corruption he saw around him. And so Pelagius reasoned like this. He said, moral responsibility implies moral ability. What I mean is, if God call, help calls us morally responsible beings, that means we must have the moral ability to obey Him right now, as maybe perfectly. And so Pelagius thought, you know, we can solve this problem of sin ourselves. We can take care of this, by golly. It's kind of a DIY thing. Do it yourself. You, you just have to Use your free will to choose rightly. Make right decisions, by golly. Make some right decisions. Choose to live rightly. And we can, we can, in effect, rescue ourselves from this rickety raft. See what happened? Genesis 3, Genesis 6, 5, those were not Pelagius' starting points. So he ended up on a very different adventure. 
thinking you can rescue yourself from this inward depravity. And friends, we all tend to think that way. R.C. Sproul once said, we are all Pelagians by nature. We're all Pelagians by nature. He said, we're all closet heretics. <laughs> we all think we can just help ourselves and solve these problems. I read recently on Amazon, there are currently 861,000 self-help books available to you. 861,000 self-help books. I don't know who counted them. I'm not saying we can't improve ourselves in ways. I'm not saying none of those books have any help for us. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to feel our helplessness here, friends. We need to believe that something of Eichmann is in us too. We need to believe that we are hopeless and helpless left to ourselves, that we don't just strive after mere moral self-improvement. We need to believe about our children, that they are hopeless and helpless left to themselves, so we don't just try to help them strive for mere moral self-improvement. We need to view other people around us as hopeless and helpless left to themselves, so we don't just encourage them to some moral self-improvement alone. I think God wanted the first readers here to feel, I think He wants us to feel today, this hopelessness of the Medusan raft so that you long for hope to come from outside of you. And that's the third key element we need to see. Let's call it gracious deliverance. Let's call it gracious deliverance. As dark as the picture is, God gives us glimmers of hope. That that monotonous pattern in chapter 5, so-and-so lived X number of years, had so-and-so, and he died. There are three exceptions to it. One is Adam, so I'm not really counting him. Two other exceptions. Chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. I read that whole chapter so that you would be struck by this contrast. It would leap from the page for you. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Nothing about, and he died. God just grabbed him. He walked with God. He had fellowship with God. And God took him to be with himself forever. What's up with that? Well, it is at least a glimmer of hope for you and me that inevitable death does not have to get the last word. There can be a life of fellowship with God forever. The other exception to the pattern is in verse 28, chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. He called his name Noah. And there's a bit of a word play here. The name Noah sounds like rest, comfort. Notice what his father says. Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This is life under the curse. This one shall bring us relief. Relief from our work and from the painful toil 
of our hands. Somehow he thought his son Noah would bring some rest, some comfort, some some relief somehow from this hard life under the curse, this Medusan raft. And Noah, Noah does bring rest. I'm not sure he brings it in the way his daddy thought. God has just promised to blot out humanity in verse 7. But he's not going to blot out the promise he's given of a deliverer in chapter 3, verse 15. And so, we read in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let, Let this leap off the page as well. Humanity about to be wiped out. It's just a foregone conclusion. God is sorry He made them. But Noah, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. I don't think it's a stretch to substitute the word grace as well. Noah finds grace from God. Now, now sometimes people will read verse 9. If you have a Bible open, look to verse 9, where you read, Noah was a righteous man and blameless. And so they reason like this. That's why he experienced God's favor. He was righteous, so he earned God's favor. But notice how verse 9 begins. Quote, these are the generations of Noah. Sound familiar? That's another one of Moses' chapter breaks, just like we saw in chapter 5, verse 1. That means you, the reader, are supposed to put a break between verse 8 and verse 9. That means Noah's experience of favor in verse 8 is not due to Noah's righteousness in verse 9. Friends, Noah is the object of God's freely given favor to preserve the promise of a deliverer for you and me. I think the lesson, I think the lesson is that in the face of death and depravity, our only hope for deliverance is in God's grace. In the face of death, inescapable death, and our own corruption, Our only hope is from outside of us. Our hope of a deliverer to come and bring us favor or grace. And I think we can say that because we know right where this goes. For instance, Romans chapter 5, verse 15. For if, if many died through one man's trespass, that's Genesis 5, isn't it? That's that whole chapter I read to you. Many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace, the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So, many died through that one man, Adam, the first Adam. But a second Adam has come, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and now there is deliverance available. Now there is grace. Through Jesus, death has been swallowed up in victory for all who believe. Think about what the Apostle Paul also wrote to Christians in the city called Corinth. 
He said, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, look, your faith is futile, it's empty, let's stop doing this. Let's stop playing this charade. You're still in your sins if Christ is not raised. But, he said, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For, notice, as by a man came death. Genesis 5. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So rejoice in this with me. Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection mean we too can rise if we are in Christ. God has intervened into our hopeless situation by His grace. So, when we experience the pain of death today, like the loss of a loved one, we grieve. We grieve with hope. In my six years here, I've seen many of you do that. You have grieved with hope that those in Christ will rise. Or when we, when we feel the outworkings of death, you might say, at work in our bodies now in sickness and disease. I'm, I'm almost 51 I'm feeling the aging process more and more. I'm more, becoming more aware, at least, of my own mortality. This body is winding down, but there is hope beyond the grave in Christ. If we are no longer in Adam, but now in Christ, listen, our lives, our lives are, are bound up with the risen Christ, and nothing, including death, can take us away from Him. I love the picture in Pilgrim's Progress, the allegory of the Christian life by John Bunyan, where he describes Christian, the main character, trusting in the cross of Christ, the burden of sin and guilt, comes off his back into an empty tomb of Jesus, and then he experiences challenge after challenge in the Christian life, which is what it's like until the last challenge on his way to the heavenly city, the river of death. Such a great metaphor. The river of death. And he's got to cross this river to get to the heavenly city. And so he begins to wade in, Christian does, but he can't feel the bottom. He begins to struggle. He begins to panic. He begins to cry out for help. And then Bunyan adds, the struggles a man experiences in those times are no sign that God has left him. You know why? Because Jesus has already crossed the river of death in your place. He will be with you to bring you safely home. In fact, think about this. Only Jesus Christ has experienced the second death before the first death. As he hung on a cross, he endured the curse of God against our sin until he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the reality of God pouring out wrath against my sin 
And then he died. So that now, for you and me, the first death has no sting. No judgment awaits. Death, for the believer in Jesus, is just a thin veil, it's been called. A thin veil as you step into eternity and the blessing of God in His presence forever. The Deliverer has dealt with our problem of death, and the Deliverer has come to deal even with our problem of depravity. The believer in Jesus is joined spiritually with the risen Christ to be a new creation right now, to walk in newness of life. So, yes, the old depravity is still present, but you're no longer its slave if you're in Christ. The believer in Jesus is not yet entirely new. I grant you that. Don't deceive yourself otherwise. But you are genuinely new, and one day you will be entirely new. I love how Charles Wesley put this in his hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain. Just listen. The language is slightly difficult, but the imagery is wonderful. Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, long time, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's the experience of a Christian. Your chains have fallen off. Your heart has been freed from slavery to sin. You have risen, and you are following Him in newness of life. Never forget it. So, in the face of death and depravity, our only hope for deliverance is God's favor to us, God's grace in Christ. So let me end by exhorting you. I've been on vacation, so I've had a lot stored up, a lot still to say. But I'm going to end by exhorting you. Seek to see this good news every day. This is what we're about as a church. So we, want, so we want disciples of Jesus to be like in this church, seeing and rejoicing in this good news every day. The Christian lives the Christian life believing good news. Friends, you never outgrow your need for the good news you've heard today. You never outgrow your need of it. You need this good news every single day. So, every day I would suggest, seek to remind yourself that left to yourself, you only face death and depravity. That that is your condition left to yourself, but you've not been left to yourself. <laughs> that God has intervened by His grace, and grace in Christ has conquered the grave for you. And grace in Christ delivers you from God's curse against sin. And grace in Christ has purchased your life and purchased the blessing of His presence forever. And grace in Christ has transformed you radically already today. 
Remind yourself of this good news. Seek to live in light of it every day. It's your only hope. It's the only hope you have for your children. It's the only hope for those around you tomorrow morning. Christ makes all things new. Hope in His grace today. Would the ushers prepare to serve us the Lord's Supper? We, we want to take the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper too. Ask the Holy Spirit to grant us fellowship with the risen Christ. Strengthen our faith in this good news. To hope afresh in Christ. Now, if you've yet to trust in Jesus Christ, we ask you just let this bread and cup pass you by. We're not trying to uh, look down on you in, in the least, but this little supper is for those who've already believed on Jesus Christ. But, but here's what I would ask you. I would ask you to consider honestly the reality of death and the reality of your own heart and your need for a deliverer just like I need. And you would hope in Him right now. You would abandon all hopes in yourself to fix these problems. And you would flee to Jesus by faith. You would run to Jesus and cling to Jesus, just saying, Jesus, I need you. I acknowledge my need of you. Would you have mercy on me? Would you take away my sins through your life, death, and resurrection? And would you come into my life and transform me right now? And friend, he promises not to drive away any who genuinely come to him. Second, if you are trusting in Christ, take the bread, take the cup, hang on to both. We'll take them together. But may I suggest, be intentional as you hang on to both. Be intentional. Remind yourself of your condition left to yourself and remind yourself that you're not left to yourself anymore. That God has intervened by His grace in Christ that you would rejoice. Would the ushers please come?